Hello there. You're about to listen to an episode of Food and Health Talk, Legacy Food and Health Talks. You know, in 2023, Food and Health Talks rebranded and relaunched as change makers. But all the episode we've recorded up to this point is still available for you to listen. And you're just about to listen to one of them. Enjoy it. And don't forget, Food and Health Talks is now Changemaker Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to a new episode of the Food and Health Talks podcast, a show focused on educating and empowering people to create a healthier future through nutrition and wellness education. A show where you will find interviews with leading scientists making groundbreaking discoveries, innovators, and global food industry leaders. It is that show you do not want to miss with your host, Dr. Julia Oleanju. Hello everyone and welcome to Food and Health Talks. On this episode, we'll be listening to a conversation on food security. You know, many of us experience food scarcity for the first time during the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. Many walked into stores and could not find the, the very food items or they had to ration food pick one when ordinarily they will have picked four. So these are some of the experiences that most of us are not used to. And the questions that come come along with this, what can we learn from this experience? How can we prevent this from happening again? This conversation and a lot more, this questions and a lot more, a part of the conversation I had with Richard Lackley. Richard is the chairperson of the World Food Bank and He's an expert in the area of food security. So he was very excited to share his um, insights with us at the Global Food Health Summit. And I just thought the conversation is worth sharing and at this time, triggering people to think about what we can do differently and how we can support our food system, building resilience for the future. So take a listen. I recently listened to your um, TED talk where you talked about your passion and your motivation for what you do today. Uh, you do not only work within the US, you work with different countries, um, helping them to develop um, strategies to have food securities in their country. I would like to learn more, <clears throat> learn more about what you do. Certainly. Um, well, first again, I'm, I'm just delighted to be here and, uh, and quite honored what you've put together is, really, really fantastic and more now than ever is quite needed to get the word out and share. And as we build thinking in a systemic way uh, to do things uh, better, as we do that, we'll not only will we lift people out of poverty, but we'll change the nutritional health and the, uh, and, and the capacity for people to be successful and to have a lives, lives that are healthy and, and the opportunity to be successful because they're healthy. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just delighted to be here. I, you know, in, in the TED Talk, um, I shared a story about one of the reasons that, uh, that drew me into the, into the food place, into that, into that space of uh, nutrition and, and related areas. I'd been in medicine for about eight years, and then I'd spent about 25 years in asset management as a fund manager. Um, but 
uh, and, and for people that want to see that, I'd say go watch that, that TED talk rather than repeating the whole thing. But I'll share a story that's a little bit more pertinent perhaps for today, um, which is I spent several weeks in, and I won't tell, I won't share the name of the organization. Many people can probably figure out what it is, but with a large global organization that deals with feeding people during disasters, uh, and that's from internally displaced folks, that's from uh, refugees of all, uh, of all form and fashion and from natural disasters. And I had a meeting every day with this one fellow who was heading up policy and strategy. And, uh, and, uh, and so, and, and this fellow came in one morning and said, sorry, Richard, I've, I've got to go to another meeting that's critical and I'll try to meet you after lunch, but it's going to be a few hours. And when he came back from lunch, he looked completely exasperated, uh, completely like he had been beat on for quite a while. And I said, you know, this has uh, been quite a morning for you. What, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, we, we send out requests for donor organizations and others to help fund uh, when we have big challenges. And we hope that we'll get the dollars that are needed and we came up short. So we have to figure out about 300,000 people that we're not going to feed this winter. And we had to select those that are in the most critical area because likely we won't have the budget next year in the spring either. So these are the people that are most likely to die. And then we won't have to feed them again in the spring either. And for me, uh, in a world that we live in, to have to make decisions like that is, uh, is unwarranted and, and uh, unneeded. And it's because we don't have proper systems in place. So I'll use that as kind of the entree to say that what I do, the reason that I do it is because just like you and I heard Julia growing up is that your, your mother probably said, you know, there's enough food in the world to feed everyone. It's just not where it needs to be when it needs to be there. And that is certainly the case. There is enough available, but we don't save what we could save. We don't send what we could send. We don't store what we can store. And there's an opportunity to be able to do that. So through the World Food Bank, at a high level, what we do is to motivate small farmers around the world uh, to be able to grow the best quality so that that quality is now suitable enough that they can sell that food throughout the region and even sell it internationally if need be. And, and to motivate them to do that, we guarantee offtake. So we say, if you grow good corn, soy, wheat, sorghum, fruits and vegetables, we guarantee you a market with a minimum price to assure them that they will make an income. So that's kind of the core of what we do. And then we'll store the food using high tech storage technologies. We will store the food so that months or even years later, the food's available in times when there's crisis. Thank you so much, Richard. Um, so like you, you mentioned um, during your talk here, yeah, this is um, very, very unusual times for us. And um, one of the key things that I, I even discussed with you earlier on is the way I felt when I walked into the store during this um, COVID-19 pandemic. And I, for the first time ever, walked into the store and I could not find what I wanted to buy. The shelves were empty you know, shelf after shelves, just so empty, um, empty space. And I, for the first time, I had to explain also to my children that, oh, you know, some of your favorite uh, food items might not be available for a while, you know, and I thought about this, that this is a real problem. We don't have 
um, a secure food system. We don't, we don't, we, we need to build resilience into our food system so that when disasters strike like this, like we had, we've, we've had in the past few months, we have systems in place that can still support our population without having to result into um, food scarcity. And that's one thing I want to um, get your thoughts on with regards to number one, what do you observe as some of the weakest um, points in our food system that led to the experience we had? And, um, and then we move on to what we can uh, do to tackle these problems. Certainly. Um... And, and there are obviously there's numer, numerous weaknesses in the system, as it were. Uh, and, and I think that I had shared with you before that the, um, when I was going through university, we learned that uh, just in time, the JIT method was the preferred method for manufacturing and running businesses where we produce just enough to get to where it needed to go just in time. So that we're never, we never have extra, we never have waste, we're producing just what's needed when it's needed. And through the COVID uh, episode that we've, we've experienced recently, we've realized that a, a really strong system isn't necessarily one that's just in time, but it's one that's dynamic. It's a system that can actually fluctuate and absorb new product and push out additional product when and where it's needed. Some of that is likely coming from the supply side and some of that's probably coming from uh, the, a reserve type mechanism, which is what we do through global food exchange. Um, there's also a difficulty in the, in what we see the, the food chain for commercial is different than the food chain for retail. And so we've seen disruptions in both. So while your family and my family as well, couldn't find some of those critical foods, those that were, would give us solace that would make us feel comfortable, what we call comfort foods. Um, while we couldn't find some of the comfort foods that we wanted, restaurant chains, because they're not operating, there's a, an excess piled up in the, in the freezers and refrigerators and warehouses of those who store 50 pound bags of commercial products to be used in restaurants. So there's a disconnect there and an inability to cross those value chains right now. That's so interesting. And, you know, and thinking about that, that's a problem on its own because you now have food waste. Some people are, need food. They can't find food in the stores. Some people have excess food. They don't know what to do with it. So that means there's a need for a connection to exist along those lines. Um, so to improve on those weak points, it kind of like leads me to the next questions on, on improving the weak points we have in our food system. Uh, you've mentioned some very crucial ones. And I remember um, getting a post on LinkedIn. One of, our, one of our friends, one of my friends who owns a company that services restaurants actually pivoted during this um, pandemic to start um, serving general population. He started um, delivering food to homes. So not food as in cooked food. So Normally, they service restaurants, but now, which is wholesale, now they went into retail, and now they service people and provide groceries into homes, which is one of, one of um, the innovations we refer to in terms of diverting the food that, should, that could be going to all these wholesalers, to the retailers, um, to individuals. Um, number one, we're curbing waste. Number two, we're, we're, um, we're helping people gain access to food as well. So I was just wondering if you have any other thoughts on what we can do um, to fill in the gap in 
those places where we have very, very um, strong weaknesses in our food system? <laughs> It's a, it's a really great question. And I think there are probably, the, the good news is there's probably multiple solutions. Um, the two that I would, I would talk about today are probably um, the ones that are already ready for scale and that would help solve multiple problems at the same time. And um, when, I, when I speak with entrepreneurs and others, one of the things that I always um, suggest is that when you're looking for a solution to a problem, look for an elegant solution because mm. a truly elegant solution will actually solve multiple problems at the same time. Mm. So when we put all of them on a whiteboard and you say, well, we have a problem with restaurants shutting down and not earning revenues, you're going to have a huge uh, percentage of restaurants mm. that are going to file bankruptcy in the next 12 to 18 months because they run on such slim margins and they have such high overhead costs. If they lose three to four months and it takes them three to four months to rebuild, many of those chains are running on the edge already they're going to go out of business so how do you take how do you build a model that helps solve the problem for those restaurants but also solves the problem that we we're just talking about which is that excess food that's going to uh, commercial locations well there are a couple things one is perhaps uh is working with restaurants and restaurant especially those chains and then giving some sort of tax incentives perhaps to those to retrofit their restaurants so that they can now go from a food, from a indoor food service uh, facility to an external or a delivery or a pickup facility mm -hmm. to allow them to go outside, open a table with a tent over it and be able to produce things mm -hmm. as needed and folks can come by and pick them up so that they can continue doing some sort of business, even if it's a very select menu. I think mm -hmm. there's also software platforms that'll come by that'll take the restaurant chains that have 60 items on their menu and say here's the eight that mm -hmm. they're focused on now mm -hmm. and it uses most of those ingredients but we're not going to get too fancy we're going to focus on these eight things that way we have throughput of ingredients we have the same buyers still able to buy mm -hmm. and we're able to push that product through so that's one mechanism is to work on retrofitting restaurants uh, so that they can uh, and you'll notice that the organizations like uh, especially those that are fast food, the Chick-fil-A's and the McDonald's of the world are actually doing okay. Um, they've opened up their drive through windows, they put plexiglass on their windows and they just have busy, busy lines. Mm -hmm. So they're continuing to use most of the inputs. They have. The, the second is to be able to have a conversion of product, especially those that are perishable, mm -hmm. is to take those products and then push them into storage and to have an absorption model. So that's what we've done at Global Food Exchange, but we would love to see the model of Global Food Exchange expanded throughout the US um, exponentially and, and as well in other countries around the world. And that's a model where I'll use what originally was started for, was to be able to take, for example, in Georgia, both in Georgia and in uh, Colorado, where I live now, Peach growers, sometimes if the rains come towards the end of the season, they'll have an excess number of peaches and all the grocery stores can't absorb them. And, or they'll have number twos, ones with cuts or marks or what have you that often go to waste. We can buy those at 25 cents on the dollar, keeping those farmers in business, generating some income from that, even if it's their cost, but it keeps it from going to waste. We'll take those and slice them and put them in a dryer and now we've dried those peaches or pears or plums or apples or what have you. We can also do the same thing with certain meats and with vegetables. And we can take those products, combine them together to make dried meals 
And then we have a bagging technology that's been around for a long time that allow us to store those meals for 20 years. So if you have a model where you can absorb all of that excess, and then when there's disasters like a Katrina or what have you, you can push them back out and the government needs a lot very quickly in short order. They can then purchase those products, push them back into the market and slowly reabsorb that. So that's mm. kind of how to absorb, how to get on the excess of the commercial product. That's, that's very interesting. And so um, your capacity as a member of the advisory board, are you likely to make recommendations for any of these things? Um, to the appropriate bodies or um, should we expect like policy recommendations that can be made to improve outcomes next time? What, what do you think will happen going forward? Well, um, the USAID, for those who don't know the US Agency for International Development, it's the largest institution in the United States. It's where assets that are given by its, in, in fact, it's called help, you know, help from the US, from the US people. And so when dollars are provided through the US government from you and I mm. are pushed out to, um, to help in, in development, a lot of that development, probably 70% is actually aid more than it is development. And President mm. Trump has been working to move that more towards development mm. because you have, you have countries that have been getting aid for 50 years and we're trying to give a hand up instead of a handout. Mm. And that's what many of these countries that are um, that are really developing and are really strongly pushing in that way are focused on, they're focused on development. Those countries, ironically, are also the ones that are getting really hurt by COVID right now. Mm. They don't have the ability to, to uh, transfer products across borders because their borders are closed and so on and so forth. So being able to take those countries and take their core products, maize, wheat, sorghum, rice, and to be able to add value in country to mm. empower local production uh, and local storage is one of the keys. So helping them to vertically integrate, to build higher quality uh, uh, manufacturing and processing facilities is going to be a big key. And being able to take research from US universities on cutting edge techniques and technologies and what have you, being able to uh, efficiently push that out, that's a big part of the platform that USAID is supporting now uh, to be able to see uh, more efficiency so that they can they can switch very quickly and as you know farmers if you you can't tell them to, not to plant this week if this week is planting week they have to plant this week sure. you can't tell them they can't go outside if it's time to harvest they have to go outside mm. so there has to be mechanisms in place to allow them to do that and if everything else is shut down there has to be a mechanism to be able to absorb that production so that they can continue on to the next season if they're they don't make any money this season they don't have any money to buy seed and fertilizer for the next season hmm. uh, so that comes through that comes through building local capacity hmm. and the same thing happens in the u.s you have um cattle farmers in the u.s who are going bankrupt because they are not able to sell their cows and they can't afford to keep feeding them hmm. and there's not enough local slaughterhouses that are approved by uh the federal government so the same thing we're gonna have to increase the ability through organizations like usda increase the capacity for local producers, whether that's fruits or vegetables or poultry and dairy and beef, to be able to get the proper certifications to be able to retrofit if they need to, so that a lot of these that are locally, uh, local providers can step up their volume and be an off taker for those folks that are growing, uh, growing commodities or growing or animals that uh, need to be processed in a timely manner. Mm, that's interesting. Thank you so much for that. Um, one thing I, I want to also go into, 
I know you've worked with different countries in the past, um, especially developing countries that, um, that have had to deal with food scarcity. I was wondering if, if there were some strategies that were implemented successfully that you've seen, like if you pick one uh, or two and say, okay, no, this is a proven, this is a proven strategy that has maintained food security in several countries or in this particular country that we've seen a lot of success with. If you pick um, a few, what would those be? Mm. That's a really good question, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you know, it actually varies depending on, on the country. So those that are in uh, semi-arid uh, countries like northern parts of Brazil um, or, North, or Canada or parts of Europe are different than those that are in tropical and subtropical. Uh, so one of those that I would say is to actively increase capacity for drying. Mm. And so wherever we're able to take and do regional drying facilities, and if you can, for people that are not familiar with it, if you can think of walking into a traditional room, but that room has aluminum panels on it with insulation, and you have a dryer, which may be heaters, it could be electric, uh, it could be solar powered, they're not exorbitantly expensive to build. But if you, even those rooms that could be used for storage during a time of crisis, all of the stuff could be taken out of storage and now, now becomes a drying room. Um, we've seen that work effectively in certain parts of Uganda um, and in Zambia, places like Ethiopia uh, and Nigeria. And, and so expanding on that model would be hugely supportive because dryers work for fruits, for vegetables and, uh, and for grains. Uh, as well as other things. And if they're done properly, they can actually be done for, uh, for meats as well. Okay. So drawing is one. Uh, the second is to build on a, and it takes really a regional or even a national commitment is to, is to support storage technologies like what we use, which are these giant hundred metric ton bags. So they're the size of two forty foot containers stacked on top of two forty foot containers. They're quite large. Mm -hmm. Inside those bags, the bottom half and the top half, you can put pallets and stack grains and pulses and what have you. So in mass quantities, you can put in thousands, you can put tens of thousands of metric tons of grains and pulses and related foods, even those after they've been dried, and store them almost interminably, but store them for several years until the market picks back up. Those two capacities, the ability to take food that's going to go bad in the next seven days, now extend its shelf life to six to 18 months. That's one. The second is being able to pull that out of the market that's excess and being able to hold it until the market needs to reabsorb it. And so that storage thing is probably the second. I think those are probably the two. The two. Uh, right. And then, right. Which is, which is great. But one thing I was thinking about, thinking about um, the lockdown we just had, for instance, where you have limited transportation going on, you have a number of people um, falling ill. So if you have storage units across the country, let's use, I mean, US, for instance, you have a huge land space. So that means there should be a different strategy in place to ensure easy transportation from those storage units to where they will be needed. So we're thinking supply chain from farm to fork now. So how do, what kind of strategy do you think we will need to have in place to be able to easily um, uh, dis disperse this um, if we have something like COVID happen again? Let's assume we have a second wave of COVID and um, there's a lockdown, maybe a prolonged lockdown. How can we ensure that those storage units can um, 
whatever we have stored in there can be used readily by people who are mostly in small towns all across the country. Uh, that's a uh, very good point. And I, I don't know that we have the tech, I don't think we have in place what needs to be done effectively right now. Mm -hmm. I do think that the technologies exist. Mm -hmm. So there's a few different solutions that we're seeing. One is we're seeing because of the increased capacity of batteries in smaller stages, we're seeing um, drones that are able to carry larger weights. Mm -hmm. And in instances where, and actually you have drones that are now being made for personal two-person helicopters. Well, if it can lift 1,500 pounds, it can certainly carry uh, some storage weight as well. And so one is by the air is being able to send drones to villages with product that can then be um, distributed. Uh, that's one. One of the reasons that it also is beneficial to store those products as dried foods mm -hmm. versus the old fashioned way of what we call MREs, the meals ready to eat, mm -hmm. is that more than half of the weight is water. Mm -hmm. And water really doesn't in and of itself have nutrition. So it's better to ship dried food, ship a lot more value, a lot more nutrition, um, and be able to ship it that way. The other are is that you're starting to see uh, that there's been development in countries like Mozambique and Tanzania where they're taking, to, and, and it can certainly be used here, where you have four-wheel drive type models. And I grew up in the South, and I can tell you that a lot of folks that didn't care much for these jacked up four-wheel drive trucks certainly appreciated them after Hurricane Katrina. Because those are the guys that when water was two feet deep, put two or three tons of food on and drove it out to the places that it needed to be. And I think we're going to see an increase in the size of those small, portable um, uh, transportation vehicles that can carry heavy weights. And I, I would see them not only in emerging markets, I think you're going to see them in the U.S. I think disaster organizations are going to start seeing more of those so they can get to... Um, when disasters happen, a lot of our traditional transport and logistics just goes out the window. You have trees across highways, you have broken up roads, and an 18-wheeler is just not going to make it. So alternative vehicles are going to be one of the answers in that space, I think. Thank you so, so much um, for your insights. It's very, very valuable. I'll, um, I'd like to encourage everyone, if you have questions for Richard, please type it into um, into the Q&A box. I see a lot of comments here, but please type into the Q&A box so we can um, answer those questions as well. Thank you. Uh, let me just quickly look through to see if there are any questions. Okay, so yeah. So um, we're wrapping things up. I just want to get one or two questions in. Just one second. Okay. All right, we don't have any relevant um, question. We have one question, but it's not relevant to this topic. Um, yeah, so I'll, wrap, I'll be wrapping this up. Thank you so much, Richard. Do you have any final thoughts as we wrap um, this session up? Um, well, I, um, you know, we've got a lot of things going on in the country right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm hoping that the challenges that we have will actually create an opportunity for people to come together mm -hmm. and solve the problems. The right. uh, the, everything works much better. The old Swahili saying: "If you want to go, if you want to go fast, go mm. alone. Mm. If you want to go far, go together." Mm. And I, I agree so much with you. Yeah, I agree very much with you. And I want to say a big thank you to you for making time to join us today to share your insights on how we can better manage um, 
crisis, how we can build resilience into our food system. I want to thank every single one of you that signed in to um, join us today. We really appreciate you being here. This afternoon, we'll be talking about um, innovative um, plant-based solutions that could also help with food insecurity. Richard has talked so much uh, today about how we can tackle food insecurity, different strategy, but there's uh, something else we need to talk about, which is plant-based solutions. A lot of times we see in the marketplace that meat is, is not available because um, a disaster broke somewhere or something happened. So how can we circumvent this problem? How can we mitigate this problem? Those are some of the things we'll be talking about this afternoon. I want to invite you to join us at 1 p.m. and um, listen to our experts talk about innovation we're seeing in the space, how it will shape the future, and what um, we can do to be part of it as well. Thank you again, Richard. Uh, we're so glad to have you, and thank you, everyone. Have a good afternoon. Yeah, bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'd like to share a very important tool that makes it very easy for me to prepare this podcast every single episode with you. And that tool is a platform called Anchor. Anchor is a platform created by Spotify, which makes it very easy to record, edit, merge, insert music into your audio, and just prepare everything you need for each of your episodes. It also makes it easy for you to work with your team as well. They could prepare the files for you and you upload easily or they upload for you. Whatever you want to do with preparing for and broadcasting your podcast, Anchor makes it easy. So check it out. It's free to create your account. And I also want to add this as a sponsored segment. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for another session of Food and Health Talks. We invite you to subscribe to this channel, share this with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a review for us. Together, we are joining hands to shape a healthier future of food.